Section 18 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cyprian Overbeck Wells, A Literary Mosaic, Part 1. From my boyhood, I have had an intense and overwhelming conviction that my real vocation lay in the direction of literature. I have, however, had a most unaccountable difficulty in getting any responsible person to share my views. It is true that private friends have sometimes, after listening to my effusions, gone to the length of remarking, Really, Smith, that's not half bad. Or, you take my advice, old boy, and send that to some magazine. But I never had, on these occasions, had the moral courage to inform my advisers that the article in question had been sent to well-nigh every publisher in London, and had come back again with a rapidity and precision which spoke well for the efficiency of our postal arrangements. Had my manuscripts been paper boomerangs, they could not have returned with greater accuracy to their unhappy dispatcher. Oh, the vileness and utter degradation of the moment when the stale little cylinder of closely written pages which seemed so fresh and full of promise a few days ago, is handed in by a remorseless postman. And what moral depravity shines through the editor's ridiculous plea of want of space. But the subject is a painful one, and a digression from the plain statement of facts which I originally contemplated. From the age of seventeen to that of three-and-twenty, I was a literary volcano, in a constant state of eruption. Poems and tales, articles and reviews, nothing came amiss to my pen. From the great sea serpent to the nebular hypotheses, I was ready to write on anything or everything, and I can safely say that I seldom handled a subject without throwing new lights upon it. Poetry and romance, however, had always the greatest attractions to me. How I have wept over the pathos of my heroines, and laughed at the comicalities of my buffoons. Alas, I could find no one to join me in my appreciation and solitary admiration for oneself, however genuine, become satiating after a time. My father remonstrated with me, too, on the score of expense and loss of time, so that I was finally compelled to relinquish my dreams of literary independence and to become a clerk in a wholesale mercantile firm connected with the West African trade. Even when condemned to the prosaic duties which fell to my lot in the office, I continued faithful to my first love. I have introduced pieces of word-painting into the most commonplace business letters which have, I am told, considerably astonished the recipients. My refined sarcasm has made defaulting creditors writhe and wince. Occasionally, like the great Silas Wegg, I would drop into poetry, and so raise the whole tone of the correspondence. Thus, what could be more elegant than my rendering of the firm's instructions to a captain of one of their vessels? It ran in this way. From England, Captain, you must steer a course directly to Madeir. Land the casks of salted beef, then away to Tenerife. Pray be careful, cool and wary, with the merchants of Canary. 
when you leave them make the most of the trade winds to the coast. Down it you shall sail as far as the land of Calabar, and from there you'll onward go to Bonnie and Fernando Po, and so on for four pages. The captain, instead of treasuring up this little gem, called at the office next day and demanded, with quite unnecessary warmth, what the thing meant, and I was compelled to translate it all back into prose. On this, as on other similar occasions, my employer took me severely to task, for he was, you see, a man entirely devoid of all pretensions to literary taste. All this, however, is a mere preamble, and leads up to the fact that after ten years or so of drudgery, I inherited a legacy which, though small, was sufficient to satisfy my simple wants. Finding myself independent, I rented a quiet house removed from the uproar and bustle of London, and there I settled down with the intention of producing some great work which should single me out from the family of the Smiths and render my name immortal. To this end, I laid in several choirs of foolscap, a box of quill pens, and a sixpenny bottle of ink, and having given my housekeeper injunctions to deny me all visitors, I proceeded to look round for a suitable subject. I was looking round for some weeks. At the end of that time, I found that I had, by constant nibbling, devoured a large number of the quills, and had spread the ink out to such advantage, what with blots, spills, and abortive commencements, that there appeared to be some everywhere except in the bottle. As to the story itself, however, the facility of my youth had deserted me completely, and my mind remained a complete blank, nor could I, do what I would, excite my sterile imagination to conjure up a single incident or character. In this strait, I was determined to devote my leisure to running rapidly through the works of the leading English novelists, from Daniel Defoe to the present day, in the hope of stimulating my latent ideas and of getting a good grasp of the general tendency of literature. For some time past, I had avoided opening any work of fiction, because one of the greatest faults of my youth had been that I invariably and unconsciously mimicked the style of the last author whom I had happened to read. Now, however, I made up my mind to seek safety in a multitude, and by consulting all the English classics to avoid the danger of imitating any one too closely. I had just accomplished the task of reading through the majority of the standard novels at the time when my narrative commences. It was then about twenty minutes of ten on the night of the 4th of June, 1886, that after disposing of a pint of beer and a Welsh rabbit for my supper, I seated myself in my armchair, cocked my feet upon a stool, and lit my pipe, as was my custom. Both my pulse and my temperature were, as far as I know, normal at the time. I would give the state of the barometer, but that unlucky instrument had experienced an unprecedented fall of forty-two inches, from a nail to the ground, and was not in reliable condition. We live in a scientific age, and I flatter myself that I move with the times. Whilst in that comfortable lethargic condition, 
which accompanies both digestion and poisoning by nicotine, I suddenly became aware of the extraordinary fact that my little drawing-room had elongated into a great salon, and that my humble table had increased in proportion. Round this colossal mahogany were seated a great number of people who were talking earnestly together, and the surface in front of them was strewn with books and pamphlets. I could not help observing that these persons were dressed in the most extraordinary mixture of costumes, for those at the end nearest to me wore peruke wigs, swords, and all the fashion of two centuries back. Those about the center had tight knee breeches, high cravats, and heavy bunches of seals, while among those at the far side the majority were dressed in the most modern style, and among them I saw, to my surprise, several eminent men of letters whom I had the honor of knowing. There were two or three women in the company. I should have risen to my feet to greet these unexpected guests, but all power of motion appeared to have deserted me, and I could only lie still and listen to their conversation, which I soon perceived to be all about myself. Egad! exclaimed a rough, weather-beaten man, who was smoking a long churchwarden pipe at the end of the table. My heart softens for him. Why, gossips, we've been in the same straits ourselves. Gadzooks, never did mother feel more concerned for her eldest-born than I when Rory Random went out to make his own way in the world. Right, Tobias, cried another man, seated at my very elbow. By my troth, I lost more flesh over poor Robin on his island than had I the sweating sickness twice told. The tale was well-nigh done, when in swaggers my lord Rochester, a merry gallant, and one whose word in matters literary might make or mar. How now, Defoe, quoth he, has the tale on hand? Even so, your lordship, I returned, a right merry one, I trust, quoth he, Discourse unto me concerning thy heroine, a comely lass, Dan, or I mistake. Nay, I replied, there is no heroine in the matter. Split not your phrases, quoth he. Thou waitest every word like a scald attorney. Speak to me of thy principal female character. Be she heroine or no? My lord, I answered, there is no female character. Then out upon thyself, and thy book too, he cried, thou had best burn it, and so out in great dungeon, while I fell to mourning over my poor romance, which was thus, as it were, sentenced to death before its birth. Yet there are thousands now who have read of Robin and his man Friday, to one who has heard of my Lord Rochester. Very true, Defoe said, a genial-looking man in a red waistcoat who was sitting at the modern end of the table. But this won't help our good friend Smith in making a start at his story, which I believe was the reason why we assembled. The dickens it is, stammered a little man beside him, and everybody laughed, especially the genial man who cried out, Charlie Lamb, Charlie Lamb, you'll never alter. You would make a pun if you were hanged for it. That would be a case of haltering, returned the other, on which everybody laughed again. By this time I had begun to dimly realize, in my confused brain, 
the enormous honor which had been done me. The greatest masters of fiction in every age of English letters had apparently made a rendezvous beneath my roof in order to assist me in my difficulties. There were many faces at the table whom I was unable to identify, but when I looked hard at others, I often found them to be very familiar to me, whether from paintings or from mere descriptions. Thus, between the first two speakers, who had betrayed themselves as Defoe and Smollett, there sat a dark, saturnine, corpulent old man with harsh, prominent features, whom I was sure could be none other than the famous author of Gulliver. There were several others of whom I was not so sure, sitting at the other side of the table, but I conjecture that both Fielding and Richardson were among them, and I could swear to the lantern jaws and cadaverous visage of Lawrence Stern. Higher up, I could see among the crowd the high forehead of Sir Walter Scott, the masculine features of George Eliot, and the flattened nose of Thackeray, while amongst the living I recognized James Payne, Walter Besant, the lady known as Ouida, Robert Louis Stevenson, and several of lesser note. Never before, probably, had such an assemblage of choice spirits gathered under one roof. Well, said Sir Walter Scott, speaking with a pronounced accent, ye ken the old proverb, sirs, over money cooks, or as the border minstrel sang. Black, Johnson with his troopers, ten mark make the heart turn cold, but Johnstone, when he's a-laying, is war ten thousandfold. The Johnstones were one of the Redstales families, second cousins of the Armstrongs, and connected by marriage to... Perhaps, Sir Walter, interrupted Thackeray, you would take the responsibility off our hands by yourself dictating the commencement of a story to this young literary aspirant. Na, na, cried Sir Walter, I'll do my share, but there's Charlie over there, as full of what as a radical's full of treason. He's the laddie to give a cheery opening to it. Dickens was shaking his head, and apparently about to refuse the honor, when a voice from among the moderns, I could not see who it was for the crowd, said, Suppose we begin at the end of the table and work round, any one contributing as little as the fancy seizes him. Agreed, agreed, cried the whole company, and every eye was turned on Defoe, who seemed very uneasy and filled his pipe from a great tobacco box in front of him. Nay, gossips, he said, there are others more worthy. But he was interrupted by loud cries of no, no, from the whole table, and Smollett shouted out, Stand to it, Dan, stand to it. You and I and the dean here will make three short tacks just to fetch her out of harbor, and then she may drift where she pleases. Thus encouraged, Defoe cleared his throat and began in this way, talking between puffs of his pipe. My father was a well-to-do yeoman of Cheshire named Cyprian Overbeck, but marrying about the year of 1617, he assumed the name of his wife's family, which was Wells, and thus I, their eldest son, was named Cyprian Overbeck Wells. The farm was a very fertile one, 
and contain some of the best grazing land in those parts, so that my father was enabled to lay by money to the extent of a thousand crowns, which he laid out in an adventure to the Indies with such surprising success that in less than three years it had increased fourfold. Thus encouraged, he bought a part share of the trader, and fitting her out once more with such commodities as were much in demand, viz. old muskets, hangers, and axes, besides glasses, needles, and the like, he placed me on board a supercargo to look after his interests, and dispatched us upon our voyage. We had a fair wind as far as Cape de Verde, and there, getting into the northwest trade winds, made good progress down the African coast. Beyond sighting a Barbary rover once, whereat our mariners were in sad distress, counting themselves already as little better than slaves, we had good luck until we had come within a hundred leagues of the Cape of Good Hope, when the wind veered round to the southward and blew exceedingly hard, while the sea rose to such a height that the end of the main yard dipped into the water and I heard the master say that though he had been at sea for five and thirty years, he had never seen the like of it, and that he had little expectation of riding through it. On this I fell to wringing my hands and bewailing myself. Until the mast going by the board with a crash, I thought that the ship had struck, and swooned with terror, falling into the scuppers and lying like one dead, which was the saving of me, as will appear in the sequel. For the mariners, giving up all hope of saving the ship, and being in momentary expectation that she would founder, pushed off in the long boat, whereby I fear they met the fate which they hoped to avoid, since I have never from that day heard anything of them. For my own part, on recovering from the swoon into which I had fallen, I found that, by the mercy of Providence, the sea had gone down, and that I was alone in the vessel. At which last discovery I was so terror-stricken that I could but stand wringing my hands and bewailing my sad fate, until at last taking heart I fell to comparing my lot with that of my unhappy camarados, on which I became more cheerful, and descending to the cabin made a meal of such dainties as were in the captain's locker. Having got so far, Defoe remarked that he thought he had given them a fair start and handed over the story to Dean Swift, who, after premising that he feared he would find himself as much at sea as Master Cyprian Overbeck Wells, continued in this way. For two days I drifted about in great distress, fearing that there should be a return of the gale, and keeping an eager lookout for my late companions. Upon the third day, towards evening, I observed, to my extreme surprise, that the ship was under the influence of a very powerful current, which ran to the northeast with such violence that she was carried, now bows on, and now stern on, and occasionally drifting sideways like a crab, at a rate which I could not compute at less than twelve to fifteen knots an hour. For several weeks I was borne away in this manner, until one morning, to my inexpressible joy, I sighted an island upon the starboard quarter. The current would, however, have carried me past it, 
had I not made shift, though single-handed, to set the flying jib so as to turn her bows, and then clapping on the spritsail, studding sail, and foresail. I clued up the halyards upon the port side and put the wheel down hard as starboard, the wind being at the time northeast half-east. At the description of this nautical maneuver, I observed that Smollett grinned, and a gentleman, who was sitting higher up the table in the uniform of the Royal Navy, who I guessed to be Captain Marriott, became very uneasy and fidgeted in his seat. By this means, I got clear of the current and was able to steer within a quarter of a mile of the beach, which, indeed, I might have approached still nearer by making another tack, but being an excellent swimmer, I deemed it best to leave the vessel, which was almost waterlogged, and to make the best of my way to the shore. I had had my doubts hitherto of whether this newfound country was inhabited or not, but as I approached nearer to it, being on the summit of a great wave, I perceived a number of figures on the beach, engaged apparently in watching me and my vessel. My joy, however, was considerably lessened when on reaching the land I found that the figures consisted of a vast concourse of animals of various sorts who were standing about in groups, and who hurried down to the water's edge to meet me. I had scarcely put my foot upon the sand before I was surrounded by an eager crowd of deer, dogs, wild boars, buffaloes, and other creatures, none of whom showed the least fear of either me or of each other, but on the contrary, were animated by a common feeling of curiosity, as well as, it would appear, by some degree of disgust. A second edition, whispered Lawrence Stern to his neighbor, Gulliver served up cold. Did you speak, sir? asked Dean very sternly, having evidently overheard the remark. My words were not addressed to you, sir, answered Stern, looking rather frightened. They were none the less insolent, roared Dean. Your reverence would fain make a sentimental journey of the narrative, I doubt not, and find pathos in a dead donkey, though faith no man can blame thee for mourning over thy own kith and kin. Better that than to wallow in all the filth of Yahoo land, returned Stern warmly and a quarrel would certainly have ensued but for the interposition of the remainder of the company. As it was, the dean refused indignantly to have any further hand in the story, and Stern also stood out of it, remarking with a sneer that he was loath to fit a good blade onto a poor handle. Under these circumstances, some further unpleasantness might have occurred had not Smollett rapidly taken up the narrative, continuing it in the third person instead of the first. End of section 18